It wasn't long ago that a man and a woman had a son. And this son that they had, this guy had been thinking about, he had been just consumed once he found out that he was having a son, what this boy was going to be. From day one, the boy came home from the hospital, went into his room as a baby, and from day one, there was footballs all around. Footballs everywhere, on the walls, in the bed, on every item of clothing, it seemed. And every single day, the dad groomed his son, for one thing, to be an NFL quarterback. At the age of seven and eight, this prodigy was going around the country to all different kinds of clinics, all different kinds of of football camps, not as a participant, but as a showcase of what could happen if one was totally devoted to being a quarterback. Seventh grade, the letters started coming in. Eighth grade. Offers. By the time he was in high school, he was high school All-American. Everybody wanted him on their campus. And he chose one. He chose one school, a school known to put people into the pros, a school known even for their quarterbacks of yesteryear and even of the day. He signed with the University of Southern California, and he was a Trojan. And he did okay. Started a couple of years. Led them to a number of victories. Was, even on draft day, drafted. And everybody's like, oh, it's a success. It is a success. But the story doesn't end there. Because from being a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old and every single day being groomed hour upon hour, seven days a week, at the age of ten, having videos that he had to sit and watch and just tear down the tape, he grew tired of the game. And he became an NFL bust because of those that he befriended. Because of the downtime, he decided to turn to a different God, not the God of football, but to the God of drugs. Within a couple of years of him being drafted and him being a starting quarterback in the NFL, he found himself himself homeless, finances in utter chaos. Broken. And you say, man, what is wrong? What is wrong with, a, with a, a parent who would drive them, their kid, to that point? What, what is wrong with, with a parent, a dad, who would say there is one purpose in your life and this is it? But this morning, isn't that what we're here about? Because there was a heavenly dad who said to a son, Son, you have one purpose, and your purpose is to go to this place called earth and to live a sinless life, to die on a cruel cross, to stay in a grave three days, and yet 
to come alive. That's your sole purpose. That is your goal. Now go. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't fizzle out like this quarterback. He didn't take his eyes off of the goal like this one man. And we are here this morning, we are here today because of the events some 2,000 years ago when a father sent a son with a sole purpose, and that was to be raised from the dead. If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want you to turn to probably, no, not probably, to the chapter on the resurrection. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That would have been, been much louder if I had the mic on. I promise you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read a long passage. And I understand that it's a long passage, and I don't want you to get stuck in the passage. It is all about the resurrection. It is all about Jesus, and it is verse after verse after verse, paragraph after paragraph, an argument, no, multiple arguments, by one whose life was changed by this risen Savior. You're going to see, if you just take it word by word or sentence by sentence, you would see multiple arguments. There's a historical argument that is found in these verses. There's a a theological argument that is found in these verses for the resurrection of Jesus. There's a logical argument, and there's an experiential argument. All of these found in these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want us to hear it in whole, and then we will break it apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 And following, and I read out of the English Standard Version, states this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Amen. Verse 12. 
the argument changes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith, river bend, your faith, sir, ma'am, boys, girls, your faith, is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beast at Ephesus. Wow, I mean, he fought with beast at Ephesus. Who'd you fight to get here today? That's, I need to get back. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't you like how he just puts that proverb right there? Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up! Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Verse 35. But someone else will ask, How are the dead raised? 
With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What, do you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as He has chosen, as to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from the star, from star in glory. Verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It is a natural. If, it, if there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that the fruit, excuse me, that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I pray. God, I ask that as we take just a few moments... Toward these verses would sink. Father, they would sink deeper into our selves, into our minds, into our thought, into our lives than just black ink on a white page, just moments of talk. Father, they would sink and they would stay because of the weight that they are, because of the glory that they show of you and of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, every single word is true. It is your word. It is breathed out from you. It has been kept for us to know you, the one and only God. Father, may we come in contact with you today. Would you speak to every student? Father, to every man, to every woman in this room, would you speak? God, might we know, not just with, 
with head knowledge, but Father, might we know experientially, might we know who you are and what you have done for us. For that's your desire. Father, we're yours. We were created by you. Father, this moment is yours. I ask that you would use it for your glory, God, that you would use me for your glory. To this, your people, I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hope is found in a risen Savior. This morning, I, I want you to see that. And I want us to see that. I want to share with you, I want to share with us this morning from this passage, three truths about just that, that hope is found in a risen Savior. The first truth comes about it this way, that this message, hope being found in a risen Savior, this message is delivered in simplistic yet majestic fashion. Simplistic yet majestic fashion. You're like, what message? The message that's found in verse 4. Read with me again, verse 4. As Paul recorded these words, let me start in verse 3 because it talks about him and we're going to talk about Paul for just a brief moment. He says this, For I delivered, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures or in accordance to the Scriptures. The message, that message, that Christ died for our sins, that message that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that message is delivered in simplistic yet majestic fashion. First, look at Paul. He's the delivery man. Everybody knows a delivery man or a woman. It was just a couple of weeks ago that, uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, the Tillmans were looking for a delivery man to come to the house. The, the United States Postal Service brings our mail about noon every single Saturday. I mean, every single Saturday, mail is coming. And two Saturdays ago, we were looking for a specific item to come in the mail. Because that specific item would then allow us to go get a vehicle. And we had a vehicle picked out. And it was as if at least three of the Tillmans, uh, one will go nameless, he didn't care. But three of us had our noses stuck to a window from about 12 o'clock to 2.45. No mailman. And all the time we were thinking, oh, car's gone, car's gone, car's gone. About 2.50, mail came. We run, not to the deliverer. But we run for the message. We run for the envelope to see if it's there in the mail. It wasn't there. The car did not get bought that day. And we had to wait. But let's look at the delivery man for just a moment. 
Look how he describes himself. He is just that. He is a delivery man. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Then he says this about himself. He says, I'm like in in verse number 8. He says, I'm one untimely born. And that does not translate from Greek to English. That that just does not translate. Here's what A.T. Robertson said about that statement. A.T. Robertson was the greatest Greek mind probably that America has ever produced. He stated this about that statement. He said, it's going to come up on the screen after I start reading it, I know. He said this. Paul means that when Christ appeared to him and called him, he was as compared with the disciples who had known and followed him from the first and whom he had been persecuted. No better than an unperfected fetus among living men. And to be honest with you, that doesn't even translate. Unperfected fetus among living men means this. Paul calls himself an aborted, dead baby compared to the living men, the disciples, the apostles, the believers in Christ. He was an aborted fetus. How demeaning. How lowly He speaks of himself. Verse 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Verse 9, he also says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Paul doesn't think very highly of himself, does he? I mean, Paul is just railing one time after another after another. Verse 10, he does say that he's a hard worker. Verse 11, he does state that he is the preacher of the gospel. But Paul understands it's not about the delivery man. It is about the message. And it's a message that you and I need to see today. You and I need to see it very clearly this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, I've already read it for you. The message is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures that, that Paul is speaking to those in Corinth about are, are these... Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, those are the scriptures that he is speaking to. And time and again, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book, it points to a Messiah coming, a deliverer, one who is going to take their place according to the scriptures. This Messiah, this Jesus died. This Jesus, this Messiah was buried, and this Messiah was raised to new life. The message is packed with meaning. Christ died for our sins. Hundreds and thousands of years earlier, verse after verse was stated that the Messiah would come. Christ was buried. David spoke of this. Isaiah spoke of this. Christ was raised on the third day. David, the psalmist, spoke again. Isaiah, the prophet, spoke all according to the Scripture. What a message. A message that gives you hope. A message that gives me hope. Hope for this life. 
is found because this Jesus was raised from the dead. Hope for a spouse that you think there is no hope. A child that is wayward that you think will never come home. There is hope because this Jesus. Hope for a situation. Hope is found all because of the events of a couple of thousand years ago. Halfway around the globe. The events of a man. The man who was considered a rebel, a heretic, a criminal. A man who was nailed to a cross, laid in a tomb, thought to be gone, dead, was now raised to life. 2,000 years later, those that sit in black chairs in Hernando, Mississippi, have hope. What a message. Second truth, this picture for you and for me, this picture is painted with an agricultural background. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, he talks about seeds. But before he talks about seeds, there's a description of Christ in these verses. I need to draw your attention to that. Look at verse number 20. And look at verse 23. It states this, but in fact... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That next part of the sentence, that next phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The first fruits. Now, what are the first fruits? be honest, you need to go read Leviticus and you'll figure out what the first fruits are. But let me just share with you what the first fruits were and what they meant. The first fruits were once the, the seeds were sown into the field, once the crop was growing, once the crop was ready to harvest, those who, who owned the land, those who would go into the harvest, they would get that first stalk of corn, that first group, that first... Um, stack of wheat, they would go get the first grape, the grapes, the olives, and they would bring it to the tent of meeting. They would bring it to the temple and they would present it to the priest. And the priest would take that first fruit and he would go in front of the altar and he would wave it in front of the altar to say this, Lord, thank you. Lord, you have been faithful again. A whole nother year, a whole nother harvest has come. And we know where the harvest has come from. It has come from you. And we so appreciate that. We are bringing this first fruit because it is yours and we are laying it on the altar. And we know the promise. You're faithful. Not just with the first fruit, but with all the harvest. And Jesus... Y'all need to catch this. Jesus is the first fruit. Who then is the harvest? You and me. He's the first fruit. The first fruit what? The first fruit of the resurrected life. He is the first one to be resurrected. No, there was another guy, wasn't there? There were a number of people. No, they were resuscitated. They were not resurrected. There's a difference. 
resuscitated, they breathed again, they lived again, but Lazarus is not walking around Bethany any longer. Jairus' daughter is not walking around in Galilee any longer. She died, he died. Everybody else that came in contact with Paul's handkerchief that was resuscitated, they died again. Not Jesus. And you and I, those who believe in him, will be that great harvest. The first fruits were given. But then we see the seed is perishable. In verses 35 through 44, I'm not going to read it again for us this morning, but in those verses, in those nine verses, ten verses, we see a story, an illustration of a seed. They spell out for us concerning this seed going into the soil. The seed is sown. It goes into the ground and it dies. Without it dying, there's no grain. Without it dying, there's no sprout. Without it dying, there is no life. But this seed goes into the ground, it dies, and then from that kernel sprouts life. You say, what in the world has this got to do with me? What's it got to do? I, I, don't, I don't even know what farming has. You got green tractors, red tractors. Some folks have yellow tractors, orange tractors. What is it? Doesn't matter the color of the tractor, sorry. It's the seed that goes into the ground and dies that brings about the crop. You and I must die to live. You and I, in 2017, whether students, adults, You and I must die to live. Oh, we can exist. We can exist just like tomato seeds or oak acorns exist in a Ziploc bag. But there is no way, there's no way that you can taste the acidic greatness of a tomato sandwich if that seed does not go into the soil and die. There's no way that you can swing on the branches of a majestic oak or sit under the shade on a hot day unless that acorn goes into the soil and dies. That's when a tomato plant comes forth. That's when an oak comes forth. And that's when you and I, when we die, when there is life. Paul says, I die every day. River Bend, when's the last time you died? When's the last time you died? When's the last time you died to self? When's the last time that you put down sin and you died to it? You laid it at the cross and said, Jesus, it's yours. You covered it. You took it. You paid for it. I'm leaving it there. And you quit. You stopped. You're no longer going that direction. When's the last time you died? Because unless you die, unless I die, there is no life. There's no way for you to live, no way for me to live unless we die. Oh, the church, 
church needs to die. Most of us here today, if we're honest, we've grown up in the church. Since we were toddlers, our moms and dads, they brought us to rooms and buildings somewhat like where you find yourself and I find myself today. And that's great. It's great. But also we need to have it as a warning. Because you and I have the tendency to forget about the harshness of the world. We tend to sugarcoat or that we have grown dull to the teeth and the bite, the pain, the tragedy of this world. The world and its master are out to trip, to stop, to ensnare, to trap kill and destroy you. And you and I need to be aware. A third and final truth. The simple truth is spelled out for all alike. If you read verses 13 through 19, you see this truth. It is laid out. Paul does a great job in arguing the fact that states, hey, if Christ isn't raised, Brian Tillman's an idiot. If Christ isn't raised, you are a fool. If Christ isn't raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Above all others, we are the fools. If he is dead, faith is useless. If he is dead, you and I are still in our sin. If he is dead, you and I have no hope. If he is dead, we are nothing but molecules and synapses and tissues. Just like the atheist of our day state. If he is dead, There is no meaning to this gap between your birth and your death. Those dates. There's no meaning. If he's dead. Paul states it this way. Eat, drink. Find something that you like to do and do it for your heart to your heart's content. For tomorrow you die. If he's dead. You and I should never come back in this room. Oh, church. But if he's alive, hope is ours. If he's alive, death is not the end. If he's alive, death has no sting. If he's alive, death is defeated. If he's alive, there is purpose for today. If he's alive, there is victory. There is meaning even at this very moment. If he's alive, there is a plan for you. If he's alive, there's a plan for your life. If he's alive, there's a plan for today. 
If he's alive, there's a plan for your job. If he's alive, you too can be resurrected and will be resurrected to life, to life, to live forever and ever and ever. If he is alive, you and I have hope. If he's alive, sir, you live. You live. He was the first fruit. You and I are the harvest. If He's alive, you and I can trust Him to do all that He has said He would do. If He is alive, hope is found. Hope is found in a risen Savior. Hope is found in an empty tomb. Hope is found because one went to a cross. Hope is found because He paid it all for you. And He paid it all for me. And because of that, Mondays are to be lived different by Christians. Because of that, words are to be spoken differently by Christians. Because of that, because of His life, this life is to be different. Because we have hope. Just this week, I found myself in a hospital waiting room. I didn't think that I was going to be there, but but I found myself in a hospital waiting room and I, I was reminded of 20 plus years ago, sitting in a hospital waiting room and hearing the chatter of all different types of families. It was a busy waiting room that day and it was a busy waiting room this week. And and I was just reminded afresh and anew. The people you and I come in contact with that have no hope because they don't know Jesus. How do they make it? Why in the world would you, who know Jesus, try to make it without Him? He lives. And because of that, you and I live. Heavenly Father, God, you have loved us indeed. Father, you have loved us. In such a way that, Father, we can't wrap our arms around. We can't come to grip with all that you have done. God, you're so good. Lord, would you speak individually to us? God, would we obey you this morning? Father, Your Spirit, may He penetrate our hearts, draw us to You, for You are the one who saves. You initiate salvation. You you do all the work in the middle of salvation. And Jesus, because You rose from the dead, You have victory over death. You rule and reign in splendor, and You keep us saved for eternity. It is Your work. God, you draw your people.
to yourself this morning. Would we obey you?